Good evening and welcome to the Culinary Historians of Chicago's monthly Zoominar. I'm Scott Warner, president of the organization. And tonight our program is titled An Onion in My Pocket. And our illustrious speaker, Deborah Madison, will surely make you cry and smile as she slices into her oniony story about her life with vegetables, starring a truly regal figure of ve and vegetable history, Deborah Madison. Deborah is the author of her latest book, and I'm showing it here, An Onion in My Pocket, My Life with Vegetables. And just briefly about Deborah, uh, Deborah is the award-winning author of 14 cookbooks, including The New Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone and Vegetable Literacy. Her books have received four James Beard Foundation Awards and five awards from the International Association of Culinary Professionals. In 2016, Deborah was inducted into the James Beard Foundation Cookbook Hall of Fame, and she lives in New Mexico, which is where I met her last year. I got to sit at her table during the International Association of Culinary Professional, Professionals Conference, and I was like, oh my God, I'm sitting next to Deborah Madison, and, and I asked her to... Uh, if she'd be interested in speaking for our group sometime, this is before the pandemic, if she's ever coming to Chicago. So I gave her my card. And you know what? A, a couple of months ago, she contacted me and said, I finished my memoir. I'd love to talk to your group. And here she is. Um, I've, I've just only touched on a few highlights of Deborah's career. And now let us reap a harvest of vegetable wisdom from the esteemed vegetable guru herself, Deborah Madison. Deborah, it's come on down. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. It's so nice to be here. And that was a very generous introduction. And Onion in My Pocket, My Life with Vegetables, is a memoir, which is a slice of your life. And in my case, it's a rather large slice. But tonight, I'm going to talk with you about vegetables and um, the emergence of vegetarian food in our culture. So, now, I want you not to be nervous because it's going to sound like I'm going to say, I did this, 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 and this, but then it's going to stop very soon. So I was raised in the Central Valley of California in Davis, and becoming a chef or a cook was hardly on my horizon when I was growing up, or ever really. After all, I grew up in the 1950s and 60s, long before people even thought about being chefs or cooks. But I became interested in food when I discovered it could be good. And at the age of 16, my parents went to Europe for a sabbatical and they farmed each one of us kids out. And I got to live with a couple who didn't have children and who didn't have that expense, who'd lived in France many times and were wonderful cooks in that tradition of French country cooking, and that was my introduction to food. But other than that, I had a very bifurcated upbringing around food. Um, <clears throat> scarcity versus plenty was really it mostly, scarcity being my mother's mode and plenty being my father's mode. Um, we didn't eat a lot of meat. We had fish sticks and ground lamb, mostly because it was cheaper than beef. We had steak only once. I was 10 years old and I remember it like it was yesterday almost. Um, it came from the university 
And we had to fill out a questionnaire as we ate it. And we had to discuss whether it was chewy and what color it was. And I just remember it was tough and gray. What I really wanted was a horse, of course. And once, uh, once in the summer, in August, every time my mom would go back east to visit her family. And when she went, my dad took her to the airport and he came back with grocery bags filled with the foods of his Midwestern background, which he loved. And for a week, our food completely changed. Suddenly, we didn't have shredded wheat for breakfast, but we had, um, we had eggs basted with bacon fat. For dinner, we had short ribs and chicken and dumplings and things like that. It was fantastic. And then it all disappeared the minute my mother came home. And we never really incorporated that as part of our life, just one week. And it was usually about 105 degrees out because it was August. And we were eating all this wintry, heavy food, but it was really good. After college, and I went to UC Santa Cruz, um, I became a Zen student in 1969. And I'd also gone to Japan that summer. Out of my own and away from school and my family, I had been trying to quiet some anxiety with the sweet taste and soft textures of pastry, especially cheese Danish. I had lived in Boston for a while, so I was familiar with cheese Danish. Then I sat my first sashin, which is a week-long period of meditation. And the food we ate was a revelation to me because it was so utterly plain, but so good. Imagine a bowl of white rice with a few toasted sesame seeds, another bowl of miso soup, and then daikon pickles, which I'd been eating in Japan just the week before. It was amazing how wonderful it tasted. And of course, hunger helped a lot. It taught me so much, mainly that I needed food, hands, soil, and plants, along with meditation to get me through the rough patches of life. At least in the end, I learned that. But then I learned that such simple food was full of promise and that it needn't be really very complex to be compelling or good. After that session, I moved into 300 Page Street and I became the head cook very shortly. We had a house meeting to find a cook and my hand shot up. I had no idea I wanted to cook. None at all. But the kitchen seemed like the most interesting place to be. Plus, I'd be near the source of food, which was important because I was really nervous about getting enough to eat. I had inherited a macrobiotic kitchen, and I loved the food that the previous um, cook had made. Beautiful, rich, succulent stews, not just brown rice. But I soon learned a few lessons, and one of them was what is that should never have to be asked when it's being served. And if we were going to eat, the food had to change. So there was a cafe, Chinese cafe, two blocks from the Zen Center. And I noticed that a number of, of the older students went down there for breakfast every morning. And I went down to myself to see what it was all about. And there they were eating hash browns and bread, toasted white bread and potatoes and what, eggs, scrambled eggs and maybe smoking a cigarette, reading the newspaper, having a cup of coffee. 
So I figured out I better change the diet so we can all eat together, including the older students. So I included butter and cheese and eggs. I put baking powder in the pancakes so they'd be a little fluffier and less like shoe leather. We had vanilla and cinnamon and we had desserts on every Saturday night. And what else? We had pasta, lasagna, enchiladas. And so bit by bit, I made dishes that were familiar and that we could all enjoy eating together. The other thing I had to learn was about taking care with food and with the people eating it. I was a brand new student, not a wise old monk, and we didn't even have the guide to kitchen practice that we would have later, written by a monk in the 1300s. I wasn't always sympathetic to people's food trips, but I thought maybe I should be. And I soon learned that you could never satisfy everyone's desires, no matter how good I thought a meal was that I had made, it was going to be wrong for someone and they would be sure to let me know. So food was complicated and I often felt as if I were failing. The decision to become vegetarian happened the year that I was head cook. A nurse was given a turkey by her hospital and she decided to give it to us. And I thought that was very generous. So we roasted it and put it out with the sweet potatoes and all the other traditional foods. And um, people were horrified that there was meat in the Zen center. And I didn't necessarily share their horror because to me, the model was the begging bowl, not a diet, but begging was pretty much impossible at that time. So we became a vegetarian kitchen. The year after I had been the head cook, I went to our monastery, Tassajara, in the Los Padres National Forest. Perhaps some of you have been there, I don't know. But um, I write a lot about Tassajara and the way we ate in the Zendo or the meditation hall, in our nested bowls and many other things, but mostly about our food obsessions there, which were quite few, quite a few. There was a lot of anxiety around food that was satisfied in part by day off dinners and town trips, which were totally absurd in their contrast to our everyday food, which was actually very lean and monastic. But one thing that affected me very, very deeply was the meal chant, which started out, excuse me, 72 labors brought us this food. We should know how it comes to us. And I was very taken with the number 72. Was it really 72? Not more, not less. Later, the word was changed to innumerable, but I rather preferred 72 because it grabbed my imagination in a way. And I've been concerned about the steps that shape and bring us our food ever since, regardless of the number. Now, Tassajara served meat when we first acquired it in 1967 a practice we continued for a year or two. And I suspect it was hard on the servers who weren't necessarily vegetarian or going to get to eat those lamb chops in any form at all to carry them to the guest dining room. So after we stopped serving meat, we were forced to focus on vegetarian possibilities. And as most of our guests were from the Bay Area, and because we made good bread, we were asked to start a bakery in San Francisco, which we did. And that was called the Tassajara Bread Bakery. 
And then as our food got better, they asked us to open a restaurant, which we also did much later, and that was Greens. In the early days of Zen Center, we were earnest about returning to whole foods away from the convenience foods our mothers had enjoyed. But we were not skillful at cooking them. Who was, really? Whose mom made sesame soybeans? Whose dad threw a piece of tofu or tempeh on the grill? We didn't even have tempeh then. We barely had tofu. We bought all the organic grains and beans that we could, but we didn't handle them very well or in a very sophisticated way. Everything was heavy and brown. And frankly, vegetarian food during a lot of the 70s was not very appealing. As for vegetables, they were not exciting either, at least at first. There weren't any farmer's markets or heirloom vegetables or gardens and farms from which restaurants could buy produce. Vegetarian food deserved the bad rap that it got. Now, one day in about 19, I don't know, late, late 1970s, I was asked to show Alice Waters and Lindsay Shear of Chez Nice our farm, Green Gulch. Now, Alice was looking at everything and asking a lot of questions. Lindsay was quieter. She was the pastry chef. Lettuce seemed to be most compelling to Alice, then a cow load, and she asked about cream, and then we came across a bed of potatoes, and she asked about them. Then I asked Alice and Lindsay if they had ever heard of Richard Only or Elizabeth David, two of my culinary heroes at the time, and if Lindsay made tart to ten. They answered yes to all my questions, and then Alice asked me, if I had ever been to Chez Panisse, as if that would explain something, and I think it would. I hadn't. I wasn't even sure I had heard of the restaurant, but she invited me to come and bring friends, so three of us went the next night. She had made the restaurant sound so funky and casual, I was sure we were going to be eating on picnic tables, but it wasn't funky at all. There was a massive velvet curtain, that, you, that kept out the cold as you came in, the little French lamps, gorgeous bouquets of flowers, tablecloths, and, the, and, and even matchbooks that said Chez Panisse on them. Suddenly, we were unsure of ourselves and our funny clothes and our funny everything, but there was kindness and acceptance. After we had gone to, after we'd had our dinner and we drove back to the Bay Area, to San Francisco rather, um, students never did this, but I did notice that the Abbott's light was on. So I said, I have to talk to him. And I went upstairs and I said, I have to work at Chez Panisse. And this was the food I had been looking for. And I talk about this in the book too. Um, so I started to work there practically the next day. Alice had asked me if I wanted to, and that, I have to confess, was my first and only experience of restaurant work before Greens, okay? So it was a very exciting time at Chez Panisse. It was a time when people came to the back door with bags of quinces and baskets of berries and boxes of wild mushrooms. And now I understood why Alice was so taken with the lettuce at Green Gulch because one of my jobs was to break down lettuce until we got to the hearts. The rest were discarded. It was crazy. I can't imagine that happening today, but it wouldn't. 
What I loved about working at Chez Panisse was the intensity of it. There could be music and wine and talk, but at the same time, everyone was so focused. At Zen Center, the mood was very different, almost dour in spirit, and the attempt to be mindful slowed everyone down to a decrepit pace. I thrived at Chez Panisse, even though I was always a bit nervous because it was cooking school for me, really, after all. And I never could make the contribution to the restaurant that it made to me. But Alice was the perfect person for me to meet at that time. She was so generous and was sure to make space for me to learn and even get paid. I went to France and it was time for me to have an experience of food in its place for myself. I met up with Peter Overton there, the head baker of the Tassajara Bread Bakery. Our first meal when we got to Paris was dinner, and it was a bit strange and confusing to me. It reminded me of food I had made or eaten, clunky but good, earnest, sincere, and it turned out that we had gone to the only macrobiotic restaurant in Paris. The waiter probably told us. After that, we were a little more careful. I met up with Alice in Marseille, and a number of people had come from Berkeley with gifts of Zinfandel for the Perros of Bandol Campier, where Alice was going to cook dinner. The fugas that we bought for dinner and the garlic soup that Lulu Perrault offered those of us who had drunk too much wine were so good that I incorporated both at Greens in one form or another. And it wasn't until I returned from that trip to France that I really learned about the plan to create a restaurant. And I was told I would be the chef, and I immediately became a bundle of nerves. Now, I want to digress just a little bit. Somebody sent me an amazing gift. It's a Life magazine from 1970. And this, this magazine, um, which had a beautiful blonde young woman on the cover with stalks of rice in the backpack for some reason, um, it was largely about organic foods in California, and there was a lot to learn about. But the food they showed, from the bread to the beans to the condiments, was all ponderous looking and brown. Again, earnestness and the quest for health was painted in big brown strokes. Why did vegetarian food have to be so drab? And then I remembered, once again, that it was drab then. There were few colorful vegetables to liven things up. But I also remembered that as a health food diet, vegetarianism was attempting to shed the image of health as what bodybuilders and exotic eaters, such as fruitarians, pursued. And that was a big difference right there. Ten years later, when we started Greens, there still wasn't much in the way of good produce. Seed Savers Exchange which really was responsible for introducing heirloom foods back into the culture, was just getting started then. But I had bought seeds in France at Villemorin in Paris, which our gardener planted. So we were able to introduce some new vegetables from the start, such as arugula. Imagine that. Rouge beef d'etampe or Cinderella pumpkins, perfection squash, golden and Kyogia beets, Shell beans, seven kinds of cucumbers, lots of new lettuces, sorrel, lovage, borage, opal basil, and other herbs, leeks, 
fingerling potatoes, really skinny little green beans. Now, Trader Joe's didn't carry any of these the way they do now. In fact, I think there probably was only one Trader Joe's then, and that was in San Rafael, which I had been to many times with my dad, mainly for, for wine and cashew nuts for some reason. But um, in any case, Trader Joe's, when I give talks, sometimes young people are so surprised that, this, that these vegetables were new. And, oh, but you can buy them at Trader Joe's. Well, that doesn't mean they've been around forever. So we were all, all learning at the restaurant and at the farm, Green Gulch Farm. The carrots, the first carrots were stunted in the compacted soil. The corn was eaten by raccoons the night before we planned to harvest it. We couldn't really grow hot weather produce like tomatoes and eggplants, peppers and squash. For those vegetables, my sous chef and I would drive inland on Saturday mornings, go to a U-pick, where we loaded up, after picking them, that is, on hot weather vegetables. I often planned my menus by smell on the ride back to the restaurant. Now, fresh pasta was a must then, as was the mesquite grill. And there were certain menu items that were expected then too, such as a wilted spinach salad. Now, whoever makes that anymore, it's really a good salad, but it, it's gone. It, it, it's not a wedge. It's, it's just something that disappeared. But then it was on the menu. But then so was black bean chili made with the most exotic bean we could find, which was the turtle, black turtle beans, plus chipotle chilies, which were also very exotic. Today, there's so many more beans to choose from, and we have smoked paprika, so not every dish has to be spicy, spicy hot. But those ingredients didn't arrive for many years. Food in the 1980s was rich everywhere, not just at Greens, although I was so nervous about people getting enough to eat that I added cheese to recipes that didn't even call for it. I was shocked. There were no vegans then, except we did have one customer who couldn't eat cheese for some reason, and we called him non-dairy Jerry, because Jerry was his name. And I mean, that's how many so-called vegans there were. Um, there were no people who were gluten-free or paleo or keto or anything like that. So we could serve fugas, focaccia, breads, as well as all kinds of tarts and buttery crusts with no problem at all. Then at that time, people went out to dinner to celebrate. And one of the ways they did that was to have a meal that was rich and different from what they could make at home. If they had time, that is. I think that overall the purpose of restaurants has changed, but food preferences via diet have been with us forever. And it's very, very tempting to jump on a diet bandwagon because the promises are so strong that you will feel great and be happy and you might even become a really wonderful person. But it does make it hard to say thank you and just enjoy people regardless of the food. And the promises don't generally deliver for long. People change, we age, we get sick, and we don't always apply critical thinking to everything we're doing, like avoiding gluten. 
As for recipes, I had notebooks and I actually brought some of them here. These are really, really old. And these are the original notebooks I had. Um, and I used to just list foods to try when I, I was so excited by all the possibilities that were out there. And we all were, I think, in the food community. I remember tasting sun-dried tomatoes for the first time and then how wonderful they were. They were from Italy and far too expensive for us. Actually, I've never really liked sun-dried tomatoes all that much, except for that very first time. We never served a lentil loaf at greens, whatever that is, or used fake cheeses, they didn't exist, or tofu as cheese, at least on my watch. But we did have a nut loaf on the menu that I was kind of forced to make. It was extremely rich with lots of cheeses, cashews, pecans, cottage cheese, eggs, mushrooms, and a little tiny bit of brown rice to hold it all together. It was a favorite among our customers. No surprise there, as it was good in the way that bacon and sausages. It was fatty and rich, but I hated that we had it, even though people didn't seem to tire of it. I've been asked a lot about what were my inspirations for recipes. They largely came from books because travel, I hadn't traveled then. Um, the books that inspired me were by Richard Only and Elizabeth David, of course. The New Italians like Ada Boni, Bugiali, Waverly Root, Madeline Kamen, and others. Um, some travel inspired me, but not much because I wouldn't really travel until later. But I did come to the Southwest during the summer and I brought back chilies and corn there and found out ways to put them on the menu. Occasionally we took cooking classes from people like Marcella Hazan, Diana Kennedy and Paula Wolfert. And I remember when Marcella Hazan first introduced us in a class to risotto. It was the first time we had ever seen it or even heard of it. It was so exciting, but it never made it onto our menus at all. When I started Greens, I realized that we were not Chapinese and that most people in the kitchen didn't even want to be there. So it was important to have dishes that were a part of the menu no matter what, as well as specials, which could reflect the bounty of the farm like farm salads. There were also vegetarian cliches like clumps of alfalfa sprouts, orange slices, broccoli trees that I wanted to get rid of and I made sure they didn't appear. I wanted the promise of goodness on the plate, not a vegetarian expectation via a cliche. After six months of making lunches for hundreds of people, we decided to serve dinner. And, and here's where I decided to have just one menu like we did at Chez Benice. In part, it gave us an opportunity to try all those recipes I'd been collecting. And also, I wanted us to have a hand in shaping a vegetarian meal that would last for a while, which people might not know how to put together themselves. So that's what we did. At dinner, the main dish for the husband was my worry, the husband. Lots of women had come when we were open just for lunch during the first half year. And then when we opened for dinner, they brought their husbands. 
So something had to take the place of the steak he probably wanted, and that was my big concern. It had to have form. It couldn't be shapeless. It couldn't be a stir fry. It never was anyway, or a pasta. And it had to declare, I'm it. Don't look further. No need. So we added the many-layer crepe cake from Marcella Hazan, wild mushroom ragouts with sautéed polenta, gratins of all kinds. And I often made them in individual dishes and then slid them onto some greens that benefited by their heat and being wilted. We offered potatoes and chanterelles, baked in cream, timbales, rolled or stacked souffles, tarts, wild mushrooms, wild mushroom lasagna, sorry, and fritters. And they're all in the Greens cookbook. And, and it must have worked because it seemed that people forgot about the lack of meat, which made me very happy. It's now 40 years since Greens opened and 20 years since I wrote The Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone. So much has changed. Greens now has an a la carte menu, which at dinner, which anyway, which I think reflects the ease that people feel with meatless eating. And I rewrote Vegetarian Cooking for Everyone to reflect changes, such as the way olive oil is made and the vocabulary around it, or the proliferation of plant milks. I also labeled vegetarians, I mean, I labeled recipes vegan and gluten-free when they were, so they, that they would be easy to find for those looking for them. But I had learned a lot about eating meat from eating meat, about the texture of muscle and the taste of normal food, and I wasn't necessarily vegetarian. So, I started this book, An Onion in My Pocket, 15 years ago, when I was given a month-long fellowship at Hedgebrook, which is a writer's colony in Washington State. And um, I went, and we were just supposed to write, which was not so easy for me. But at that time, I wished I had gotten a PhD in something, just about anything, so that I could be more useful in the world. And when I reread what I had written a year later, I was so horrified by it. It was so, it was just so moany groany and so, oh, poor me and whatnot that I couldn't stand it. I decided to keep with it though, because I had to discover what mattered most of all to me when it came to food. And what I found is that what matters is the kindness, generosity, and care that is offered with a meal, not whether or not there's meat on the plate. That is what deep nourishment is truly about for me, and it's also the subject of this book. So thank you so very much for listening and putting up with my stumbling over words and all that. Um, Thank you. And apparently I'm going to be seasoned and salt and peppered now and then grilled with your questions. So Great. And I will um, get my video back on. And I had a bunch of questions I was going to ask you because you said you were just going to speak briefly. You answered every question that I had. In oh. your <laughs> but uh, I did have uh, did have uh just two questions. Now, you, you spoke about meat. Uh, you, you're not a vegetarian. 
uh, are you you're eating meat today? Uh, like, what kind of meat dishes do you like? I don't particularly love meat. You know, I I mean, I, I'm married to a man who does, who grew up eating steak three or four times a week. I had it once when I was growing up. So there's a difference right there. So I, I can do quite easily without meat, but I will cook for him. And to tell you the truth, last night I made corn dogs from scratch. It was a request. <laughs> And it was kind of fun to do. I never had a corn dog. I had no idea what they were supposed to be like or anything. But um, I got I went on to YouTube and I found out and I made them and they were good. And we used Nyman Ranch beef. But I, I, I say I'm not a vegetarian, but I'm not crazy for eating meat. I don't have to have it in order to be happy. So I'm cooking mainly for my husband or other people. And when I met you at the conference in Santa Fe, uh, and I spoke to you about speaking for our group someday, and you were like just drowning in work, working on your memoir, and you mm-hmm. said, let me be in touch with you. And I, I know, and you did get in touch with me, and here you are, but uh, it seems like you're always working on something. Uh, what, what are you working on something right now? Oh, I, I, I was afraid you'd ask that. Well, <laughs> Actually, from March, when we started our lockdown, you know, I just, I live in a tiny, tiny community and I went out in my backyard and I started digging up all the salsa that I planted for um, vegetable literacy because it expands like crazy. Um, I thought that maybe I would like to go to, uh, to study botany and I, I can't do it now. We can't really leave. Um, but I read a lot of botany books. I'm in my garden a lot. Uh, what am I working on? A book called 72 Labors, actually, which is about various foods in our culture that, that we don't think about too much, but that are actually quite wonderful. And um, like that. And, and one other question. Uh, it, um, in, in your book, it said uh, at the end of your book, a note about the author, and I'm going to, this is a question, actually. Uh, it says, today, Deborah is most interested in grain production in the Southwest and in regenerative agriculture. She has grown and milled ancient wheats at her home in Galisteo, New Mexico, where she lives with her husband, artist Patrick McFarlane, and their little dog, Dante. And mm-hmm. could you say a little bit about that, about your interest in grain production and re- and regen- yeah. regenerative agriculture? Of course. Um, uh, <laughs> it's funny what gets on the back of the book. You think I think about regenerative agriculture all the time, but I don't really. But grain, I am involved with. I went to what's called grain school in Colorado a few years ago, and it was fantastic. And it was so inspiring to have all these breads and grains that we usually think of as heavy be light and delicious and and um, I came home with a mock mill as did everybody on that trip and we started milling our own grains and then we started growing trials to create hopefully a grain culture in New Mexico. Um, There are grain cultures all over the country in California and Maine, Vermont, various places, but not in New Mexico. So we're just getting started on that. And it's very exciting. 
And I have grown grains in my yard. <laughs> it said you, you've grown ancient, ancient grains. Yeah, like red. Well, they're not that ancient. They're they're before the Green Revolution, okay. which goes back to the sixties. And uh, and now I'll let let the questions begin, Kathy. How about I'll begin with a question of my own? Uh, you fair. indicated you're a big fan of Elizabeth David. So mm -hmm. how did you come upon her? I don't remember actually. I've just. It, she's just one of those people I've always known about, it seems. Are you a fan too? Yes. Yes, but yes. And and I actually was in, asked if I would write a narrative cookbook, and I thought of her immediately. Um, and because that's what I liked about her style. It was so relaxed. And take a cucumber and slice it and put it in some ice water with a little bit of salt, and there you have a little cucumber pickle for dinner. You know, I like that way of doing it, but I didn't do it that way because I think that we need too much hand-holding. Well, in, in, in her, her instructions, there was not hand-holding. If anything, you had to have experience on your own. Yeah. To yeah. deal with her cookbooks. Yeah, you did. Debbie Mills, now, if you've got a question, just simply unmute and I'll see that you're there and I'll call upon you. But right now I see Debbie Mills made a comment, a uh, question. If someone cooked a meal for you, what would you request? I wouldn't request anything. <laughs> if they cooked a meal for me, it would be whatever they cook. I don't know. It depends on who they are and where they are, when it is, and, and all that. I mean, you have to get particular. So I don't know what I would say. I'm sorry. No, I think that's a, actually, that's a, it's like, you know, I, I'm a guest at your table. Give me what you'd like, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, somebody commented that they had, I think it came, Pam, she said she had a, a copy, a first edition of Savory Way mm -hmm. that's well-worn and lots of fingerprints and stuff on it. <laughs> I just had to scrub mine down and tape it up yesterday, actually. <laughs> it was so filthy and the cover was off and so it happens here too. Uh, okay, so Marini Edwards asked, what do you like eating? I like everything. I, I, I mean, I, I absolutely love vegetables. I can't think of a vegetable I don't like. Um, what do I love eating? Anything. Anything is fine. Tonight, I'll probably go home and have soup, and hopefully my husband has reheated it and it's warm and there's some bread that we made this morning and that sounds like a good dinner to me. I guess everybody wants to know, what would you like for your last meal? I, 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 I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Are there any vegetarian chefs you uh, particularly admire? Uh, Tal Ronan of Crossroads Kitchen, uh, Yodam Odalengi, others? I do like Yotam Odalenge. In fact, I just sent him an email tonight. Um, he's wonderful, and I love his recipes, although I think they're starting to repeat a little bit. But I use his cookbooks a lot. Um, other vegetarian chefs, I think what's happening with vegetarian or plant-forward recipes right now is that they're so far out that they're not really speaking to the needs that we have right now, which is getting dinner on the table. 
And I know I speak to a lot of women who are just tired of getting dinner on the table. And I am too, you know. So I'm more interested in how, how, how we cook simply and deliciously with care than something really exotic and very far out. Uh, Therese had something rather lengthy. Do you want to unmute yourself? Oh, she did. Go ahead, Therese. Sure. Hi. Yes. Deborah, thank you so much for um, doing this. This is just um, wonderful. It's, it's You're wonderful. So welcome. <laughs> Um, for me, it feels more and more something that you touched upon. It feels more and more like we're losing that sense of um, camaraderie and past culture and connection in the meals that we cook for others. I'm a cook. I love to cook. I love to cook what people love to eat. Mm -hmm. And I feel like we're walking through a minefield these days as we plan menus, you know, for groups with so many diets and allergies and personal yeah. preferences. So I would love it if you could speak more to how we might bring some of that sense that you touched on in your talk back into our meals, despite the the um, the many many limitations that seem to be um, placed on us by 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 both by um, you know by necessity allergies and things, um, but also preferences that people are now saying I don't eat this I don't eat that. Hmm. Can you help with that. I'll do my best. I, I don't know. I mean, I think I think we just have to serve the food we want to make, put it forth. And if people don't want to eat it, that's their problem. You know, if they um, if there's if they have an illness or a real problem, you know, then you want to cook for that. Um, this came up the other day. Actually, somebody said they had an intestinal problem. And they didn't want to refuse food, but they couldn't necessarily accept it all either. So I, I think it's important to discern between those kinds of problems and people's, you know, the made up problems um, that come from saying, I'm this, I'm not that, and so forth. I can't believe what I hear, you know, how rude people are about it, even here in Santa Fe. Um, and I say here, even though I'm 25 miles southeast of Santa Fe, because it's our closest city and people do talk about that. But um, I don't know. It's a problem. It's a very, very big problem. And I hope something like this book helps a little bit in that it will encourage people to, you know, just set things aside. They're not going to die if they eat something that's not on their list. But they are, they are going to be a guest at a table, and they'll be invited back. I don't know. Do you have any solutions yourself? No, it's. I feel. I feel wistful about it. I. Um, I feel like it's a loss that cooks are, uh, you know, have, are facing these days because um, you, as a cook, I want to please the people. I mean, part of how I plan a menu is taking into consideration what people love to eat, what mm -hmm. their cultural um, preferences are, you know, what they, what really um, makes them go, mm, you know, this is delicious. This is what I love. Mm -hmm. So if you want to cook what they love, but what they love has changed. So drastically or what they love doesn't allow what they love anymore. It, it gets to be um, 
I don't know what's the word for it. It's it feels like a loss to me as a cook because I can't do part of what brings so much joy to the cooking. I can't please them as much. Hmm. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, that has happened, and I, but I think you're right. I think it is happening across the board, and I hope we'll get. I hope we'll get over it. Yeah, as, I do. Too. You know, as we spend more, as we're able to spend time together. Mm-hmm. May I make a highlight? Uh, to, I, until you you spoke, Therese, I did realize it was you. This is Therese Allen from the Culinary History Enthusiasts of Wisconsin. And she they just celebrated last week their 20th anniversary of doing programmings just like we do. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Maybe you'll come and speak to us too, Deborah. <laughs> Love to. Thank you. I'll be happy to pass you on the uh, contact information. Thank you. Uh, okay, so Tony here said a question, uh, a question about most underrated vegetables and conversely, most overrated food trend. Well, I, I don't follow trends. I don't know about them so much. Underrated vegetables, I mean, like salsify is very underrated. And I grew it to see why. And I think maybe it's underrated for good reason, because it's only good with brown butter and breadcrumbs, and that's about it. Um, so that would be on my list. And actually, I, I, for vegetable literacy, I grew a lot of vegetables that were apparently underrated. You know, they've been taken out of our context. But I don't know. Um, I had to agree with the author that they were underrated for good reason, because they really weren't that good, and they spread like weeds. On the other hand, we might want to eat those weeds someday. It's nice to know how to cook them. Uh, somebody wanted to know if you had any comments on molecular gastronomy. No. <laughs> I've never experienced it. I'd like to, but I haven't. Uh, Tara Brockman, do you wish to unmute and ask your question? Hi. Running around the kitchen. That's um, okay. Hi, Deborah. Um uh, so it's a question about gluten. You just in, in passing, you mentioned gluten, um, and of course your your interest now in um, growing and creating a grain culture there in the southwest. So I'm interested because actually I work with my little sister a lot, and she's a head miller at a small local mill in East Central Illinois called Janie's Mill. So of course gluten, you know, is an issue for some people. But I I, I think you probably had something in the back of your mind when you just in passing mentioned gluten, and I wondered what that was. <laughs> well, I think that there, first of all, there's gluten in all grains. And, and I think the problem could be glyphosates rather than gluten. Um, when people say, oh, I feel so much better since I've stopped eating bread. They're probably not celiac, but they may be feeling better because, because they're eating less. <laughs> you know, it's very simple, actually. And, and if they're not eating bread that they haven't made from ancient grains, then they're eliminating that glyphosate hit from their body, which is probably a good thing too. So I just, yeah, those are a couple of things I had in mind. And that's interesting about your sister too. Yeah, they've, uh, COVID has been very good for <laughs> small local mills because suddenly people couldn't get flour on the store shelf and they turned to their local farmers and their local mills and um, they've been doing very well ever since COVID hit. But it, 
if people probably in this group know, but yeah, the glyphosate thing is also what I always come to because if you're eating wheat from the mainstream, you know, wheat in our country anyway, it's been sprayed with glyphosate a week or two before being harvested. So there's an immense amount of glyphosate roundup residue on grains. Um, and that could be part of digestive issues as well as many other things. So yeah, yeah. Thanks. Sourdough, apparently, we learned at this conference that I went to, sourdough can really um, cut down on the reaction that people have, this negative degree. Um, maybe that's why so many people started to make sourdough bread. I'm terrible at it, to tell you the truth. But a lot of people gave it a try, and they had their own experiences. And some were favorable, and some weren't. But I think a lot of them weren't when they found out how much time it takes to do sourdough. Uh, it was, was up, uh, Heather asked, do you ever forage for greens? Do you use plants such as dandelions? I will if, yeah, if the dog hasn't been around them. And, you know, there's a lot of conditions. Um, but I, I don't forage as much as I might be able to. I do live in the high desert. We don't have a lot of things to forage for. But when I, I did live in Rome, and, and I noticed women were out foraging for a little wild mushrooms, tiny little chanterelles that look like carpet tacks, and um, greens of all kinds. And, you know, it's a little bit more friendly to that type of, uh, to, it's more friendly to foraging than it is here. Uh, Marini Edwards commented, she says, I ask people what they don't or can't eat, but I have found that I had to prepare three different meals for a pescatarian, a vegetarian, and meat, eater, meat eaters all for one lunch. <laughs> That's ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> it sure is. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know. I'm sort of a take no prisoners type of person. I put out what I'm going to make, and if they can eat it, fine. And if they can't, well... They'll, they'll figure out something. If they go to bed hungry, it's not the worst thing in the world. You know, it, it actually is okay. But generally they won't. There'll be something they can eat. Uh, I don't know if this is the, the context of what you could answer, but did you notice any difference in the grains available in Europe? I haven't been to Europe a while, in a while. And it was, um, I, I did the grain thing after my last trip to Europe. So I didn't know about that. But so many people have said when they go to Italy or they go to, to Europe in general, they can eat the grain with no problem, whereas here they do have a problem. So I, that, that's from hearsay. I haven't had that experience myself. Uh, Margaret Sheridan asked, uh, but how about the challenges of the COVID lifestyle? We cannot connect in person. How do you overcome the current restrictions? Life has changed. Yeah, it has changed. I mean, I, I find I, I feel like I'm cooking every single day, which I always did anyway before. But somehow the feeling that you could go out, you know, was a relief to the routine. I think a lot of people aren't used to um, cooking every day. They, we can't go to restaurants, take out. We try to support restaurants that take out, but it's very unsatisfactory. Um, I think one of the things that helps in this period is to have some routines. Like every Friday night, we have baked potatoes, no matter what. 
if we can't find Russes, then we'll have sweet potatoes. But we'll have a baked potato night on Friday nights. On Sundays, we might get a pizza. Um, I can cook the rest of the days. Uh, if I'm on book tour like now, um, I'll come home to a soup that I made earlier today that my husband has set the table, warmed up, and put out. So I think having a routine, some things you do on a regular basis, can really, really help. Um, but it's hard right now, and it is. I mean, I don't know what to say. It is hard for everybody, and I think that there is a little fatigue that sets in with having to cook every single night and every morning and every lunch, too. I know people who've changed what they make. Um, I went early on in during the um, COVID. I had dinner with some friends, and and I said, is this an ordinary dinner? And there was a duck breast and four vegetables. And, and now I know she's, she'll do the meat and one vegetable, and that's it. Her husband has lost weight. He feels great. It's easier for her because she also does breakfast and lunch. So I don't know what else to say. Well, that's okay. In fact, in, in my situation, I used it to clear the shelves of all these interesting things I bought while shopping, <laughs> but never did anything once I got home. Yeah, well, that can happen too. My shelves are getting bare. And I'm, and actually, I cook a lot from my books now, which I've never been able to do before, because if you're a cookbook writer, you're just on and on and on to the next thing. And it's it's been really, really interesting. I've learned so much about my own food, my own taste. And, and whether or not your recipe works, right? Right. <laughs> I'm, not <laughs> I'm not very good at following recipes, even mine. <laughs> um, if there's no more questions, I'm going to turn it over to Scott. Okay. And he's awake. There he is. I just, just unmuted. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm... I, your, your, your talk was luscious and savory and satisfying. And, and actually, I'm hungry now, too, uh, talking about all that great uh, healthy food, even though you're not, it wasn't health food, it was healthy food you were talking about. Thank you. Actually, yeah. I, I, I left out one paragraph on purpose, which was sort of a, a list of the kinds of foods that we served. And, and I thought that's kind of boring for people to listen to. You know, I won't mention it. I'll just skip over it, I think. Um, but it was very, very good. But now I feel it's very dated and it's over. So time to go on to something else, I guess. Yeah, and again, what 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 will you what are you doing now? What you you mentioned? Can you mention that again? What what, what am you, I doing now? Yeah, well, you, I'm working on a book um, called Seventy Two Labors, which is about various foods in our culture, like endive or dates or grain or and and the work involved in growing them. Um, I'm very involved with our grain project, and I'm working a lot in my garden. And, and your upcoming book, uh, and that'll have lots of recipes in it too, right? No, I don't know. <laughs> okay. I hope not. I'm kind of done with recipes. I've written a few. Okay. Well, well, uh, you're, you're a recipe for success. And uh, again, we're honored. We're really honored to have you speak tonight. Thank and, you so much, Scott. Yes. And, uh, and may our paths cross again at future non-pandemic conferences. I hope so. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you, Catherine, and everybody for your questions. It's been great to be here.
Thank you. Happy Thank you, holidays. That was great. Thank you. Very good. Very interesting. Thank you. And good night, everybody. Good night.